Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki Rousseau, CEO and founder of Exaptic, a robotics company based in Melbourne. It gives me great pleasure to introduce you to my guest today, Professor Michael Mulford. Michael is a professor at Queensland University of Technology, where he conducts interdisciplinary research at the boundary between robotics, neuroscience, and computer vision. He is also a multi-award winning educational entrepreneur. There is so much more I can add, but please go to his website and check him out. Michael, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Nikki. Great to chat. <laughs> thank you. You're such a talented individual, Michael. I don't quite know where to start with you, but tell us about your journey to becoming a professor. Uh, thank you. That's very kind of you to say so. Uh, yeah, sure. I uh, grew up, born and bred in Brisbane, Australia. Uh, during my schooling years, I became very interested in technical things like coding. One of my most memorable experiences was being hacked in an early computer lab at school. And there's nothing like revenge as a motivation for learning a new skill set. So I learned how to code, uh, learned how to hack my friends and fellow students back. And I guess I never really uh, looked back from that point onwards. I went to university. I did a, a mechanical and space engineering degree. I also have a very long-standing interest in space, uh, partly brought on by much of my family having worked uh, at various times in the aerospace or space industry uh, in the States as well. And then I continued my sort of love affair with artificial intelligence and robotics, did a PhD, and then sort of progressed from there on the track to becoming a, a professor and, and very much love, love the opportunity to continue this work now. So different universities, um, all based in Australia, or you moved around in your education? So that's, that's a good question. And I think uh, as someone who does a lot of mentoring for younger researchers, it's an important point to make. I did my degrees and PhDs at Brisbane-based university. So I did my undergrad and PhD at the University of Queensland and then moved to UQT, sorry, QUT a couple of years later as a postdoc and then academic. There's this overwhelming perception of you need to go overseas uh, to get that overseas smell, I think is what many people refer to. So I did actually do several stints overseas as a sort of more senior researcher on sabbatical and it was incredibly valuable but I didn't feel the pressure to sort of spend five or 10 years working overseas, uh, as long as I could compensate for sort of being very engaged internationally and spending some time uh, traveling overseas for work. Uh, I felt that was a nice compromise. Uh, Brisbane and Australia is a lovely place to live. It's a lovely place to bring up a young family. And apart from the 10 or 20 hour commutes to get over to the States or Europe, I think it's an acceptable compromise to base yourself out of Australia, but to travel regularly overseas. And I would expect someone of your tenure, you know, once you go over and you do research, you're obviously getting connections overseas. So these are relationships that you foster. People know about you. They'll include you in, um, you know, conferences, speaking engagement, and, and that sort of also keeps you up to date with everything you're doing. Yeah, that's very much true. You uh, try and get a bit of a, a profile or reputation overseas. Australia is a wonderful place. It's got a vibrant research community, but there are some things that are just done better or at larger scale overseas, especially in my area, the tech sector. So developing a profile in places like, for example, America is critical. 
It's also crucial, not just for the individual, but for Australia in terms of gathering intel. Uh, so much of the really exciting research and technology development is happening, happening at companies, not so much universities nowadays. And if you are able to visit and interact and sometimes collaborate with these uh, overseas organizations, it sometimes gives you a two, three or five year preview on these exciting technologies. And then obviously without violating any NDAs or anything like that, you can bring a sort of overarching view of what's happening back to Australia. Uh, it can help advise local companies, research organizations, and of course, government as to the sort of impacts these technologies are likely to have. And increasingly, that's a role that's uh, vital for universities to play. Yeah, I suppose mentioning like private companies, it's it's money based as well. It's it's you know how much money do these companies have? And I think in Australia, for smaller companies, um, yeah, that that's a problem for us here. Yeah, it's challenging because if you talk to the younger people who are largely flocking overseas they're not motivated, most of them are not motivated purely by money. They're motivated by other factors as well, like the possibility of, of, it's a cliche, but of changing the world, of doing some good with technology. And the feeling or the perception is that with the resources of a, of a trillion dollar company overseas, uh, you have a better, and their network, of course, you have a better chance of doing that. Uh, that's that's a challenging perception to overcome, but I think we're starting to see more of it with Australia investing to some degree in startups and ecosystems, for example. And in the last year or so, not just COVID related, I think we've started to see a slight increase in the trickle of talent in tech sectors back to Australia. There have been a few sort of flagship examples of startups in Australia in, in robotics and related areas. So we're early on the journey, but I think the, the trend is very positive um, and, and that's a great place to be in. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, rather, rather early than not there at all, because it's crucial for our economy as well, how we view robotics and automation going forward. Yes. And, and there's this intuition, of course, that robotics and technology can help keep industries competitive, can make them more efficient. And ultimately, that is good for jobs, because if you can't retain competitiveness, then the industry will just disappear or go overseas. The problem is that you have to overcome all sorts of uh, barriers. Most of these barriers are not intentional, but barriers in terms of how well universities collaborate with industry, uh, how well startups are supported, how well individual career trajectories can move between startups, academia and industry, and how well failure is tolerated because failure is very much a, a part of doing ambitious, risky things, especially in the technology space. And we have some work to do there to get to the sort of cultural attitudes towards these that you would see in somewhere like Boston or Silicon Valley, where it's very much the norm to do a startup as opposed to an extremely exceptional event in Australia still. Yeah. So how well would you say are um, Australian universities collaborating in the robotic space, um, you know, sharing experiences, knowledges, knowledge that they're gaining? So Australia, even in, in large sort of topical areas like robotics, Australia is still very much a small place. And I would say that it's fair to say that the Australian universities are fairly collaborative uh, in this space. Many of the larger initiatives, especially sort of the global scale initiatives in robotics that various Australian universities are a part of, they're teams of Australian universities. We, we're part of many grants or projects where it's 
half a dozen Australian universities working together, complementing each other, also complementing the capabilities of the industry partners involved. Uh, and I think increasingly people are realizing that for much of this stuff, it's not university A versus university B, but what all two, two or four or six universities can do together. So once again, the trends are positive. The execution is by no means perfect, uh, but I think it's, it's a very positive sign for the sector. Well, look, I think, um, you know, the roadmap for robotics 2020 and the 2018 edition that's already come out, I think that sort of highlighted a little bit um, how many people in robotics are in Australia, but they don't necessarily know about each other. And this is also part of the reason I'm doing this podcast, Let's Talk Robotics, is so that people know about people like you. I mean, you're very high profile anyway, but... Um, I, I take it as my personal mission to introduce as many people to each other that don't necessarily know about each other. Yeah, and that's going to be vital to the prosperity of this area uh, into the future. And it's still there's still a lot of work to be done, uh, which is great that you're you're sort of taking these initiatives. I know I am still discovering dozens of small and medium enterprises who work in similar robotics and automation spaces to what we we do um, we i didn't know about them uh, um, i assume they probably didn't know about us so there's still a lot of work to be done and it's not that people are being competitive it's just simply yeah. that the dots haven't been connected there are still significant barriers or divides between i guess what you'd call highly applied robotics research, high technology readiness level, and the sort of fundamental enabling research that is done at organizations like universities. And we can definitely do more to bridge that divide. Yeah, I suppose it's also the university, you know, um, you know, I have heard of companies that when they go to collaborate with universities, you know, there's a certain amount of red tape that's, that's around it. And, you know, for a smaller company, you know, for instance, such as myself, um, I'm not even in that space to consider that, but you know, like it makes it a little bit hard and it's, it's hard enough just keeping a small company afloat. Yeah, there are definitely barriers. The universities are, I'm obviously not uh, talking for my university in this case, but talking more generally, the universities are, are very much aware of this. There's decades and decades of built up perceptions of what working with the university is like. Uh, there's a lot of good work being done to sort of address that and make work more feasible, flexible at all different scales, including all the way down to very small projects with uh, SMEs. Uh, currently, the system isn't quite there yet. Uh, there are issues with sort of maintaining talent pools that can sort of flexibly slot into different projects. But there are initiatives, uh, the Advanced Robotics Manufacturing Hub at uh, that QT is associated is one good example of this where we're trying to become much more flexible at being able to service and collaborate with a very wide range of industry partners beyond just the traditional sort of Fortune 500 company collaboration. Yeah, certainly it's been um, like based in Melbourne, Monash University, for instance, they've got a whole new robotics precinct that they're working on, um, very focused on industry collaboration, as well as with schools, getting children through, you know, this is, to, this is in the benefit of everyone to, to have this sort of mindset. Yes, and there'll be other, like if you talk about what's happening at a sort of a strategic level, many of the large universities are funding centres, funding precincts with QT. We have the new QT Centre for Robotics, but you also have to consider the individual. So 
even if a particular university is is investing heavily in sort of applied research, that individual's profile, especially at the early career stage, has to be sufficiently strong and nurtured that they can then get jobs all around the world. And despite the focus on impact and translational research that actually makes a difference in, in the industry or the community, a lot of job hires are still very much based on traditional research metrics like publications and citations. Mm. Uh, and so there's this fundamental tension there, which we still have to do a lot of work on. Yeah. Well, I mean, at least someone in your position recognise it and you're making steps. So you wouldn't be the only one doing this. This is an industry sort of recognising that, you know, must um, get some attention. Yeah, and, and more more and more often this discussion is happening at the highest levels nationally. Mm-hmm. Uh, whenever you get researchers, politicians, ministers, etc., in the same room, uh, so once again, I think that the trend is positive. Uh, mm-hmm. There's just a lot of work to be done. Yeah, but look, rather the work's being done, and we know we're making inroads. Um, um, my philosophy with COVID now is I'm just looking at any good news. This is a good start, and at least we're doing it. So. So you're a dual citizen of Australia and the United States. How did, how did you manage to have this good fortune? Good fortune and bad fortune. It means you have to submit dual taxes, which can be a, a bit of an integrative nightmare, <laughs> having, having just started mine this year. Uh, look, it's a result of my father being a US citizen and working in the States for many years. He was an academic uh, and also a um, worked in the aerospace sector. He worked at Grumman Aerospace. Uh, many, many decades ago in the States. So I got US citizenship through him. And my family has a strong connection to the States. Both of my brothers work in California, one in the sort of consulting uh, space and one in the uh, aerospace working for Virgin Orbit, uh, who are trying to launch rockets off the underside of a 747. Uh, So very much have a strong connection to the US. And professionally in my area, anything to do with AI or tech, although other countries are starting to catch up, the US is still very much the center of the universe where that's concerned. Yeah, um, very interesting sp- space, the space um, you know, sector and what Elon Musk is doing there, um, and as well as in Australia, in Adelaide, where um, their center for, for space work is going with Flavia. Um, Flavia, what's her surname or is it? I've got a name wrong there, but anyway, that's her. Um, your work at QUT focused on autonomous vehicles. How long have you been working on this? So I and my research group have been working in the sort of technology underlying autonomous vehicles ever since I did my PhD. Uh, I started my research career doing mapping and navigation systems, and, and mapping and navigation is a key capability that autonomous vehicles require. In terms of actually working on specific autonomous vehicle related projects, that's been sort of the last three to five years. We've rapidly grown a number of government and industry projects across the mining sector, defense and other areas, uh, working on the technology that underpins these sort of systems. We also do a lot of work in the outreach and engagement and education space around autonomous vehicles. I mentioned before that one of the key things we can do is bring back intel on what's actually happening overseas, especially in the States. And we spend a lot of time uh, visiting these companies, uh, mainly in California, and bringing back sort of broad insights onto how fast the field's moving, what are the sort of barriers it's facing, and particularly working with local government 
on what implications that may have for our Australian roads, uh, our cities. Uh, it will affect a large number of aspects of society if they become widely adopted. Uh, so that's another important role that we play there. So in terms of uh, autonomous vehicles in Australia, what, what's happening here? So Australia, as I mentioned, is very much world-class and leads the world in, in many specific areas. Automation is definitely one of them, especially in the mining sector and in port, marine port automation. So there have been autonomous mining trucks underground and above the surface for several years now, and we've been working on creating improved versions of some of that technology uh, with some of the major equipment providers in that space. Uh, and so those examples of automation, not everyone outside of the immediate professional area knows about, but they are commercially viable. They're a critical part of the commercial viability of the whole operation. And that's just quietly happening uh, in the background, which I, I find quite uh, inspiring. It's the at adaptation of those technologies and improvement into other areas like agriculture, like logistics, on-road vehicles. Uh, that is sort of where the big challenges remain. So the, the um, supposition that robotics and automation, it takes jobs away in this case, that's a complete fallacy because you've just mentioned, you know, like um, checking roads, how would vehicles, if, if this became everyday in Australia, someone has to actually go out and check all of this stuff. Yeah, so I, I like to try, especially for an audience like this, I like to try and present, and this is just my opinion, a sort of nuanced take on the whole jobs and automation piece. So I guess I would say ethically investing in automation technology is going to be vital to Australia's prosperity. It may mean that the nature of what jobs people do changes. So we may be removing some people from dull, dirty and dangerous environments like underground mines, for example. But many of those people will then find new roles in hopefully air conditioned control centers uh, and other other roles like that. It doesn't mean that some sectors may not shrink, but at the same time, some sectors uh, may grow or experience a resurgence. We're looking at manufacturing as a great example of that. Manufacturing's been basically gutted from Australia, but with COVID and questions about supply lines, there's a potential opportunity for technology to be one of the critical enabling pieces to make manufacturing a viable concern in Australia moving forward. So it's not a, a black and white issue, but overall, I think it's vital that we invest in as much technology as we can to make sure we stay competitive with the rest of the world. I think mentioning COVID is an interesting um, aspect that you look how quickly robotics has actually been accepted during a crisis time. I mean, if I look at sterilization robots that are being used in hospitals, airports and large area that it would take humans like hours to do this and they're doing it in a fraction of a time so um you know whilst COVID has been absolutely devastating there has been good come from it in in terms of people just going look these technologies these are available we must use them yeah and there's it's interesting to see which technologies have immediately sort of had some impact like the ones you mentioned and which ones have sort of been intuitively appealing but have not yet not yet got there. So automated delivery of goods in, in cities has been another one. And people have been working on that in terms of drones and in terms of road-based vehicles for many years now. Uh, and there's a lot of promise. There have been multiple trials in Australia, uh, even in sort of Logan, just uh, outside of Brisbane. 
but they're not yet widely commercially deployed for, for a variety of reasons. So there's still some interesting complex technical, but also economic issues to address around how we can make them sort of get them the rest of the way to being actually viable. Yeah. I from memory, I think I read something that Amazon's actually got um, approval now to do drone delivery um, in the United States, which will be very interesting to see how that goes. Yeah, like they, the, the various companies operating this, operating this space periodically get approval to do trials in, in different municipalities. Uh, what we really need to see is whether we can move beyond, and this is the same for autonomous vehicles, whether, where and when we can move beyond trials to just an ongoing commercial operation. That makes sense. Uh, that will be the really critical breakthrough point. Yeah. So you've written a lot of books. How, how did this all happen? <laughs> So it came from sort of a, a spurious incident in, I think, my first or second year of university. I'd finished exams a week early and I was bored stiff because I didn't have anyone to go out and party with uh, and relax with. And I'd been tutoring students at the time. And so all I did was I put down what I'd learnt were the best explanations for a bunch of mathematical problems uh, into a book. I got 40 copies printed out of my own pocket. I put them in a bookstore at Christmas time a maths textbook in a bookstore at Christmas time. And I'm forever grateful to that bookstore owner for letting me do this crazy thing. My parents who are immensely supportive said I was crazy and it would never sell. Uh, but a maths textbook sold out in this bookstore at Christmas time uh, and then continued selling out as I got restocked and larger and larger print orders for the next, I think, three months straight. Uh, so I, I apologize in advance to anyone who got my math textbook all those years ago as a Christmas present. Uh, sorry for ruining your Christmas. Uh, but that's what really got me started on my journey. And then I've written about 20 uh, books since then, ranging from straightforward textbooks to we wrote a, in collaboration with a, another talented author, we wrote a math thriller. So what we did is we wrote a young adult fiction novel that was stealthily embedded with about 15 or 20 key mathematical concepts, but very stealth, very stealth. By stealth. <laughs> uh, and that was a fun experiment as well. Uh, and continue to do this. I have a startup called Math Thrills, uh, and we continue to sort of develop uh, entertaining educational resources for people of all ages. You know, it's one of my great um, uh, things that I, I'm sorry about is at school, I was quite good at algebra, but it was trigonometry that was my downfall. So because I never actually got got to the point where I actually learned these formulas that's the basis of actually doing trigonometry. Once you understand that, then math is actually quite a lot of fun. And, you know, I rue it that I didn't have a math teacher that just took me aside and said, now listen here, just study these concepts and you'll get, you know, you'll be a strong B plus math student because I actually loved algebra. Yeah. But, but I guess for younger people listening, it, it doesn't really matter in the long term that much because there's so many different entryways into these sorts of careers. Sometimes the creativity components or the entrepreneurial components are far more important than the sort of formal math skills. And even in my own career, I know, like I was good at maths at school. I, I won uh, maths competitions, but I was pathetic at formal mathematics. So I couldn't do proofs. I couldn't do uh, formal maths. I was better at the intuitive side of mathematics. And I know a lot of people who work in the robotics and the AI field who are the same. They're not necessarily fantastic at the formal side of mathematics, but they have a very good intuitive feel of how these systems work. Uh, and so there's lots of ways uh, to, to learn 
and I guess they can all result in interesting careers. Yeah. So if from from state of conceptualizing, take me through a journey of a book that you write. So it varies. Uh, the obvious things were covering off on some of the largest topics. So I did the uh, book called The Complete Guide to Artificial Intelligence for Kids. And that was just because AI is such an important topic. We have to cover it. And as I discovered, no one had done really a book on AI for kids. Uh, kids as young as sort of four or six we were trying to reach. Uh, and that ended up being very popular. I think we've sold it in about 35 different countries around the world. Um, and I've had all sorts of amazing feedback, including things like this is not for kids. This is for CEOs. This is for grandparents. Um, everyone seems to love reading it. Then some of the other books are driven by requests from people like they might want a specific topic uh, covered uh, and some are driven by I guess professional interest as well so I'm working on one around autonomous vehicles at the moment uh, so it's a variety of sources of inspiration. So do you are you a typical writer that you go okay I'm doing an hour in the morning or how do you how do you structure your days? Yeah that's that's a that's a good good question so I tend to work in bursts I'm really bad at doing regular steady amounts of work uh, the only exception to that was I was struggling to finish, I think, like the fifth draft of my young adult novel. And so I used an app called, I think, Habit Streak. And basically, it's a brilliant idea. It, every morning at 8 a.m., it asks, did you spend X minutes working on your passion project the previous day? And you can set that to, did you spend five minutes? And so I worked for 100 days straight uh, doing at least five or 10 minutes on, on this finishing this novel. And sometimes you just do five or 10 minutes because you're sick or it's 2 a.m. or you're traveling and you're jet lagged, but often it would turn into a two hour or four hour session. So I've used a variety of self-motivational techniques to try and get through all of these projects. Which is actually amazing for someone like you because you're obviously clearly enthusiastic about it, but you know, things happen in life. I agree with you. I'm, I'm learning, um, uh, Dutch, which like I'm Afrikaans anyway, so it's a very easy language for me to learn on Duolingo. And I get these reminders popping up on my phone, sort of saying to me, now listen here, you need to do five minutes. And I, I find even if I just do five minutes, I go five minutes is better than nothing. Just take a step and, and make a start. One of the things, uh, and this is sort of sound a little narcissistic, but one of the things I've observed both personally and, and with lots of others is that people who are uh, are well-educated or, or thinkers tend to be initially very dismissive of what they'd regard as sort of trivial uh, exercises, like having a reminder on your phone. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm smart or I'm educated. I shouldn't need that. I'm just self, self-motivated. But in the end, uh, you need every, because you're so busy and there's so many things demanding your attention. I've found at least, and a lot of my friends have, that having these seemingly spurious sort of uh, hacks in your life to remind you about things uh, they're immensely immensely valuable and so wherever possible I try and use those sort of tricks so on a personal level um, do you have a, a diary that's in written form or is it all on your phone computer how do you like how do you manage your day so yeah I've I, I enjoy talking to other other people about how they do this because it seems to vary a lot I've tried keeping a log uh, I've tried taking notes um, I have read about the evils of having a to-do list on a, I think a daily basis. Uh, a lot of people say that's bad. Um, the main thing that I've really stuck with is I have a Trello board. So a Trello board, which has 
uh, immediate things to do, but also my ideas board, my long-term plans, my random musings. Uh, and that's the only one I've stuck with for several years. So for me, that's worked, but I do know that there's a huge variety in what works for different people. It's always fascinating to swap notes on how you do that. Yeah, I'm, I'm reading a lot of um, authors that go, you know, journaling and writing down what you've done and, you know, so that you can reflect back. Do you agree on the, um, the theory that you have to write down, like, um, you know, a goal? Do you do goal setting or do you just go, look, I'm just interested in all these things and they're going to happen? Um, I think, uh, obviously, everyone's opinion is going to vary on this. I think the physical act of writing is important for some people, but not important for others. The thing that I think is universal is, especially for busy people, is you really do need to set aside quality time, and, and quality is a bit of a cliched term, but quality time and sufficient time, so a big enough gap, block of time, to step back and sort of think about what you've been doing, to let those thoughts which have been suppressed for weeks of busyness uh, bubble to the surface and sort of uh, reevaluate and, and reflect on things. And, and that's something I very consciously do. I structure my holidays from work in a way that I'm basically completely disconnected from everything just to get that uh, free space. Um, I've learned through very stressful, very painful experience that not having those real hard breaks uh, it just, just has very negative effects down the track um, and coming back refreshed because I've really had a great break and been able to reflect on things has been immensely valuable, at least for me. Well, you know, um, I don't know if you've seen the movie, The Social um, Dilemma. It's just featured. Yeah, on I just watched that uh, the, other, the other night and then I read all the commentary about it online. Listen, this this movie scared the bejeebas out of me. I have to be honest. I looked at it. I immediately took Facebook off my phone because I'm one of those people that goes, oh, let me just check here. Inevitably, I get dog and cat feeds because that's, you know, I look at these dogs being cute. So my, the algorithm is completely swayed towards that. I don't see anything else. Yeah. Um, you've got a young family. What What's your thoughts on on these social media apps and what's your how are you going to do it? Yeah, it's terrifying because until recently, uh, I've been able to sort of abstract abstract myself from that question. But yeah, as if you've got kids, you sort of worry about these things, right? Um, I haven't actually made up my mind yet. I know I basically, I have a Facebook account, but for many years, I haven't used it at all. I might be on Facebook once a year. Um, and that's been really valuable. It's also resulted in me missing out on some things, but I'm, I'm fine with that because I wasn't paying attention. Uh, I, I think it really varies. I do networking and social media professionally. So I use yeah. LinkedIn and Twitter a lot because it's a key part of sort of what I want to get done uh, in terms of outreach and engagement. But uh, in terms of social, personally, um, I'm mainly face-to-face -face talking directly to friends, WhatsApp, et cetera. Mm. Um, I don't really use social networks at all. Well, it was interesting, you know, like this addiction <laughs> Um, and actually, now that it's been pointed out to me, I actually look at it now and I, I go, when last was on an app like LinkedIn or um, I use Twitter as well and Instagram, but it's like, you know, very sparingly. And there's these things popping up to go, oh, like this is, oh, this is something I'm interested in. And now that I know how they do it in the background, I'm even actually more conscious of it. And um, I've got a 29-year-old son living at home who who likes Instagram. You know, he says it's work because he does follow some people on work sites. But I, I think it's very addictive. And before you look, two hours has gone by. 
Yes, endless scrolling through whichever mm. platform is your your favorite one. So yeah, we're we're very conscious of that. We try to be, I guess, remaining conscious of how much time you're spending on it. One thing I've never done, but I'm interested in doing is a uh, life blogging where you log what you're doing every five minutes of the day. Um, I think that would be a valuable exercise because I imagine most people's perceptions of what they're doing during the day is vastly different from, from the reality. And I think that's a nice tool by which to sort of discover that, that discrepancy. Yeah, it's a bit like, what do you eat? I, I don't eat anything. And then you suddenly look at what you're eating and go, I, I don't remember eating all of this stuff sort of yeah. thing. But so as you yeah. said, during the age of COVID, I think all rules are all better <laughs> off and, and do what you can do to get through the months. We're surviving 2020. This is what this is our aim, nothing else. So, yeah. so you're a keen photographer. You do weightlifting. You're a runner. How, how do you navigate all of this in your day? So, so the key there is none of those uh, have a qualification of I'm a good photographer or good <laughs> runner. So that's an important point to make. Uh, I've always liked to have side projects. So I did sort of semi-competitive running and other sports at various stages, not so much nowadays and, and weights and stuff like that. Um, usually I have one activity that I'm particularly focusing on. So at the moment I'm focusing reasonably half-heartedly on uh, running. Uh, so I'm not doing all of those things intensely at the same time. It just wouldn't be possible. Um, but I very much like having many outlets outside of work and outside of startup and everything like that. Uh, a great way to blow off stream and running. Uh, there's that cliche of coming up with ideas when you're in the shower. I get most of my ideas when I'm out on a run. Uh, I find it very therapeutic. And, and tell me you're not a runner that has headphones in his ears that you just run and you just. <laughs> yeah. So I don't use uh, headphones, headphones on, on my runs yeah i like to get out into nature uh, i run along a creek it's uh, very nice oh it's good and actually you you know that's um what you spoke about being uh disengaged from all your your phones and apps and things you actually need for creativity you need a certain amount of boredom for your brain just to go okay and i think today people think we have to be constantly busy but you can't actually be creative if you don't have space to go let me just sit and think about things yeah, and I, I think for people who are successful and busy, uh, it can become an addiction, right? Because you feel like you're getting stuff done. And to some extent, it's true by just having 20 meetings and 50 action items. And, and, and that's, that's part of what you have to do as part of your job. But I think it's very easy to let that be the, the reason to etra and become the all-consuming sort of thing that you're doing. Uh, and stepping back, as you said, is very important. So now... What's your view on mentors? Do you have a mentor? Um, you know, how if, if someone, do you mentor people? Uh, yes, yeah, so I do a lot of mentoring, uh, especially of ECRs, um, not just here, but sort of around Australia and sometimes internationally. Uh, I, I think it's supremely important. I know the single biggest factor in my career to date was having access to two or three very supportive mentors over long periods of time. Uh, obviously mentors, they sponsor you, they develop, they nurture you, they drop you into all sorts of opportunities. I think everyone knows that. The other thing which I think people don't talk about enough is if you have a very strong, very trusted mentor, the other thing that they do, which is critical for development, is they can give you really harsh but frank criticism. And if you're in a trusted relationship, you're comfortable, you're in an environment where you can take that heart, because your, your knee-jerk reaction is to be defensive, right? Yeah. Um, 
if if you have a great mentor you've known for a long time, uh, you can take the, you can get the maximal benefit out of that harsh criticism without taking a incredible hit to your ego or self confidence. And and I've had those regularly over the years, um, and I think that's incredibly crucial for sort of ongoing growth um, rather than just sort of stagnating. I think um, you've touched on you know you have to trust them. You know I. I you, you have to be discerning, um, you know, I look at myself, who can I take advice from? Um, you know, I'm older, so not that age has got anything to, but you know, there's a certain, you know, like I've, I've lived long enough to make up sort of my own mind about stuff. But for me, it really is, I need to trust the individual that I know that, but actually got my best interest at heart. Yeah, and then there's also, especially as you get um, move beyond sort of the early stage of a career, there's that, very challenging problem of your mentor will not be right about everything. Mm. So you've got to strike this balance of being sort of critiquing what they're saying and saying, how is that relevant to my personal circumstances? We're definitely different people with different experiences and different motivations, but while also taking on board most of what they're saying. And so striking that balance right is also something that's challenging and something people need to need to work on. So um, if someone approached you to be your mentor, is this like a commercial ar arrangement for you? Sorry to ask it's such a blunt question, <laughs> but I'm sure my, my audience, you know, I'm here to ask the blunt questions. And do you, um, do you need to know the person that's approaching you? Or say someone just phoned up after this interview and said they'd like you to mentor them? Um, so it comes in all, all, all sort of aspects. So first of all, if it's someone at my university, they get it for free, of course, because yeah. that's part of my job. Um, but a lot of the mentoring I do is outside of, of my university. And it's not necessarily a formal mentoring relationship where I meet once a year. It's sort of something more informal. Um, I don't, as far as I know, I don't think I've ever charged for any of these services. I, I genuinely enjoy doing that. That said, I have a limited amount of energy and time uh, so usually the the sort of mentoring relationships that are sustained are the ones where there's the most synergy so they're in a similar area or they have somewhat similar goals or aspirations because then i can be particularly effective and efficient at sort of mentoring them uh, if it's someone in a completely different field with a completely uh, opposite life view it's interesting to talk to them but my ability to efficiently mentor them is not going to be as as great yeah so um what's your view on i know this is a bit of a contentious thing you know women in stem we're lagging a little bit behind um, well, we're lagging behind men versus women just, but I think general on a world stage, I don't think we're lagging that far behind the rest of the world is um, uh, just in Australia. What, what's the university doing to address this? Like, how do you personally view this? What do you do to address this of anything? Oh, this is a this is a tough issue, and I guess I should make it clear up front, but that I'm still very much feeling and learning my way way through this this issue. I guess from what I've seen, uh, the STEM field and the universities in general have made great efforts, not necessarily consistently across the board, but great efforts to address this issue. Uh, I was part of a recent STEM diversity committee where we were looking at how we can better uh, address these issues through hiring practice, for example. Uh, and I, I like participating in forums around this issue as well. I guess what is particularly challenging is what are the appropriate actions to take? 
Um, so you see a range of things uh, uh, proposed. So some people will say, we should just have flat out quotas. Uh, we shouldn't be apologetic about them. Uh, we should just go for it because such systemic uh, inequity that you're gonna have to do something drastic. Uh, and then you have other sort of more nuanced approaches, but then you have to check whether the nuanced approach is actually making a difference or whether it's just sort of really not having an effect. I like particularly, just to pick one example, the ARC's Laureate Fellowship Scheme. These are these, these are the superstars of research in Australia. It's like the top fellowship you can get. They award fellowships based first and foremost on capability of the candidate, right? And then once those awards have been determined, they then assess whether two of those candidates would be particularly suitable as women-specific laureate fellows. But they've already been awarded it based on their own merits, and then it's only then that that's decided. I like that sort of approach because it's very clear that everyone's getting it on their own merits, but then there's a proactive move beyond that to try and sort of further support this, this issue. Um, I don't know any more answers beyond that, um, but very much... Um, learning and I, I can see from talking to female colleagues and female students both here and at other universities there are still a large number of um, implicit barriers in place um, which we need to work on. Yeah look I, I agree with what you said there I'm, I'm on merit based and then from there you go I don't think just because you're a woman or just because you're a man this is you know it could go the flip side as well to get men into it but yeah, I, 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 I guess think it, it, the challenge there is there's a lot of talk about the, the myth of the meritocracy. Um, if, if the inequity is so bad in the first place, um, and if a merit-based approach doesn't result in any change over a sustained period of time, I think we do need to consider whether there are other things we can do on top of that to try and address the issue. Yeah, so it's a staged approach. You know, you go on the merit. If that doesn't do it, then you go to the next. Well, then you enforce it just on quota basis, but at least it's being addressed in some way, shape or form. Yeah, and, and then it's sort of, there are cultural things be outside of the STEM, STEM field as well, which have an influence, which the STEM field can't directly do anything about, um, but need to be considered in terms of any actions that it takes. Well, I always say everything starts at home. So if you've got sons and daughters, how do you raise them? You know, what do you get your daughter to do as opposed to your son? Yeah, and, and that's the problem. Like I have a, a five, five-year-old daughter and even being conscious of this uh, at home, we've caught ourselves making, uh, making com differential comments um, even at a young age. And so even being aware of the issue and thinking about it a reasonable amount that still happens so it's not a trivial thing to address no it's systemic and how we actually do everything um so a last final question for you michael how's COVID affected you 2020 um you know like being major obviously you've had to adjust in how education happens with being based in queensland maybe not as much as melbourne yeah, so I guess where, first of all, I should say being in Queensland and being at my university and being in the field that I'm in, we've been extremely fortunate in that our core business has not really changed as much. It's really sort of booming. I guess the main things we've had to deal with, excuse me, are the fact that a lot of our colleagues, uh, like our colleagues at our university are under increased stress because of increased teaching loads, the, the need to deliver online and in-person teaching simultaneously. 
and a range of other factors. Uh, so we have to uh, try and be as supportive there as a, as a Centre Deputy Director. That's one of our key roles. Uh, I guess we're also aware that a lot of our colleagues are much more stressed because they're at universities which are already implementing significant layoffs or pay cuts uh, and sort of staying aware of that and trying to be as supportive in terms of our joint collaborations is also uh, weighing on our minds. Another issue that's really important is that if, if this crisis continues, it's going to potentially decimate the career prospects of our early career researchers, so our PhDs and our postdocs who might become uh, academics, would have normally become academics in the future. So we're trying to be as supportive there as possible. I'm, I'm doing a seminar tomorrow uh, as, as we're recording this on how you can find alternative sources of funding for early career researchers. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a number of things where our core business is, is not majorly affected. Uh, everything around it is, and I guess we're just trying to navigate that and be as supportive as possible. Yeah, interesting times. And I think, you know, there's no one answer about this, this COVID situation. And it's so, it's, it's so variable, like one day to the next, depending on the numbers, our situation in Melbourne. Um, you know, I think our numbers are pretty good. But who knows, when everyone starts socialising again, it, it, we could go back into lockdown just as easily. So... And managing uncertainty, right? So no one really mm. knows what's going to happen. We're just doing it off our best estimates. Mm. Um, and I think everyone, at least in my area, has had to become better at planning specific things, having ambitious plans, but doing that with acknowledged uncertainty about exactly what's going to happen. And I think we're going to have to live with that uh, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, and just managing the, and as humans, we're not great with uncertainty. We like, like, really structured, and of course, our whole life is uncertain. Once you've made peace with that fact, and things flow easier. Yeah, that's, that's very true. So, Michael, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. So, if people want to get, uh, reach out to you, chat to you, where's the best place that they can find you? If you, if you Google me, uh, you'll find me all over Google, uh, both my professional sort of QT profile, uh, email address and so forth, uh, but then also my startup company, Math Thrills, if you're interested in the educational side of things, or you can hit me up on, on social media as well, places like Twitter or LinkedIn. Well, I'll put all of that in, this, in, the, in the notes of the show as well. So uh, thank you very much to our listeners for joining us today. Um, if you've got any questions, feel free to reach out to Michael and look forward to you joining me in two weeks' time again. Let's talk robotics. <laughs>